Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Book Exchange Podcast. This is the show that attempts to replicate in kind of an adult manner, I guess, and in a virtual manner, what we see on the cover image that goes with our podcast. So we take two identical twin brothers, toss them on the floor in the middle of the room, dump a pile of books around them, and let the wild rumpus begin. Uh, John is joining me. John, how's it going? Fine. How are you doing? Good. And uh, this is unscripted, but just by the way that the cover image for our podcast, um, if we've never explained it, depicts us at age, I think around three, John. And yeah, we had something like that. We were living in Chicago. I won't go on at length about this, but we were living in Chicago, Illinois, which is where you and I were born. And we had this, uh, I'm sure you're going to remember this, we had this red set of encyclopedias. And what we used to do, I remember pretty vividly, is we would pull like seven or eight of them off the shelf and sit on the floor exactly as we're doing in that image and like, you know, <laughs> flip through them. And and that uh, that image is so great because it captures us doing basically exactly what we do on this show. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. We we thought it was perfect, and uh, the funny thing about that picture is, I'm as you said, I, I'm pretty sure it's pre-reading. So we were, uh, I don't know, prepping for the show at an early age, <laughs> right? <laughs> because right. Just, I remember literally looking at. I mean, this goes way, way back, but I remember literally just looking at the pictures, and which is essentially what we're doing in that picture, in that photo. So, yeah, yeah, been going on it's for like, a long time. Right. It's a, it's like we were prepping to do a podcast about books of reading before we even knew how to do any reading. So uh, <laughs> that's right. That's how I look at it. <laughs> anyway, welcome, everybody. This is episode 12 of the Book Exchange podcast. And our episode today is entitled Dealer's Choice, Jim Shepard. So Dealer's Choice is a new series, and we're going to talk about what that is and, and Jim Shepard um, in just a few minutes. But um, before we before we get into that, we're going to I don't I, there's really no administrative notes from my end to cover today. John, do you have any notes that you want to cover? No, not really. I think I think we can dispense with that and just kind of dive right in. OK, well, that's going to be great because we have a, a, a very exciting media epi- media episode of the podcast today that's coming. But uh, first, let's just talk really quick. We'll go right into what we're reading. And I'll kick the ball over to you. What are you into right now? Well, to you, as always, as we've said on this show often, we're always, whether we're doing the show or not, we're always kind of keeping each other in tune of what we're reading. But I haven't spoken to you much about it. So I'm about 60% through a book called The Monk, which is from the late 18th century. So I decided to, one of the things I wanted to do, so... I've been reading a lot of Jim Shepard, which we're going to get into, you know, as the meat of this episode. So, uh, and I know you had too. So Jim Shepard being a contemporary American short story writer and novelist and, and, and essayist. Um, I wanted to, uh, as I always say, you know, I like to bounce around both, you know, geographically and also temporarily, you know, in time. And so I wanted to read something a little bit older, a little bit more classic. And this is just one of these class, quote unquote, classic books that's been sitting on my shelf for at least a decade, probably probably a few decades. And I, I'd never read it. The Monk is by somebody named Matthew Lewis. 
Um, and it's, it's an early, it's an early, uh, form of a gra of a, I almost a graphic Gothic novel. And, uh, one of the incredible things, especially when you get into reading it, he wrote it when he was 19 years old, first of all. Um, uh, Matthew Lewis is not really a household name now, but he was a contemporary of people like Byron and Shelley. And he befriended, he kind of got his way into literary, the high literary society of his time, um, just through his own working and writing. Um, but this was his sort of debut and he wrote it when he was 19 years old. And it's this really well, wild kind of religious Gothic novel. That is a, a story about, you know, the, the, uh, Oh, how to say it? Like kind of the hate to say it, but like the seamier side of religion, religion or religious orders in this case, nuns and monks and how um, just like everybody, you know, they battle with their uh, their own personal desires and uh, struggles and temptations. But then it also has a large kind of ghost story element to it, which is really interesting. And uh, apparently it gets pretty violent <laughs> towards the end of and, and disturbing for its time. It was, uh, uh, was actually banned uh, or uh, Matthew Lewis was a member of parliament and he, uh, he got in, he got into trouble when he published this novel because people thought, well, no member of parliament should be writing about what he's writing about. I mean, this is a story that features murder, incest, rape. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't relish those things, but if you're in the world of Gothic novels, you kind of know what to expect. And also, as I said, supernatural elements. So, it's really something. And it's, uh, you know, I expected it to be a difficult read, but it's not, not too hard to read. And it's very melodramatic and florid in places. Uh, but it really gets, uh, not down and dirty isn't the right way to put it because I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm there for the salacious material, but it, it really gets uh, pretty sorted. And, and, you know, I wonder where it's going. It's, it's really kind of a cracking read. So it's been really interesting and a great change of pace. So that's what I've been reading. Uh, that's a feel good novel of the year, John. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I think it connects. I think it connects to something you've been reading recently. Actually, if you want to take that blatant segue and run with it, go ahead. I was going to use that as a segue. But first, can you re re say again? I think you said it, but what year was it published? I believe it's 1790 something, 1794, something like that. Wow. And another interesting little detail, Matthew Lewis was. He died young and he uh, the only other book he's known for is a book about kind of it's called something like uh, Journal of a Sugar Trader or something. But he he managed these sugar plantations in, in Jamaica. And so he made a few trips back and forth from England to Jamaica. And apparently he managed it very well and was very humane with the with the slaves that ran it and that earned their respect and stuff. But he he died uh, aboard a ship coming back from one of his trips to Jamaica and was actually buried at sea. So just a, just an interesting figure that I really knew little about, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that's really wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, every once in a while I get a hankering to read an older book too. Um, so I can just relate to that, but on the subject of Matthew Lewis in this book, yeah, I didn't know much about the book, but I've certainly heard about it a lot over the years. And I, and I know for a fact to, to make that segue, that you referenced on, on one edition I remember looking at probably about 10 or 12 years ago, because um, it's always been around, sort of like an early horror novel. There was a blurb from the guy yeah. that I'm reading now, which is Stephen King. 
So we talked a lot about Stephen King in episode eight and our Tales of Terror episode. And I know, you know, Stephen King was a is a fan of that book, The Monk, you know, at least enough to blurb it. And uh, mm-hmm. but anyway, Stephen King is one of my favorite writers. And I explained about that when we talked about Tales of Terror. But every once in a while, I, I like to go back to the well with him. I probably do it two, sometimes even three times a year um, because I just enjoy his work. It's very entertaining to me. And, but, and I tend to do it after I've taken on something difficult and I really got kind of put through my paces in the Hillary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light. And uh, although mm-hmm. I liked it very much, but I and then I also ended up writing about that series and I was just kind of in, you know, a more demanding headspace. So, you know, how it is like, you know, when we read something difficult, sometimes we like to swing back the other way. So I picked up. Uh, there's still a lot of Stephen King books that I've never read before. And actually you got this for me at a used sale because you know that I like to look out for his books and, you know, cheap used editions. And it's uh, a, a, one of his many volumes of stories entitled nightmares and dreamscapes. It's actually his third. Um, so it followed his first one was called night shift. It's one of my favorite Stephen King books. Um, and that came out, I think in the late seventies. And then the second one was in the early 80s called Skeleton Crew. That's one of the first Stephen King books I read. I read it as a teenager. And some of those stories. I remember. Yeah, it's a much bigger book. Um, It's a a really big doorstop of a collection Skeleton Crew is. And then I remember vividly um, being a young man in the U.S. Army. I was living in Georgia, and I went up to visit Atlanta in 1993. And they had this awesome bookstore. It's probably still there in the Buckhead region of Atlanta, of Atlanta called uh, Oxford Books. It's a really unique place. And I used to love to drive up to Atlanta basically just to go to that store. And I remember walking in. It was 1993. I was about 22 years old. And I saw a brand-new hardcover of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Um, it was like a big doorstop hardcover with a scarecrow on the, on the cover of it. I remember that vividly. But anyway, I'm catching mm. up with it now. <laughs> Fast forward, you know, 30 years or whatever it is. And... Um, yeah, it's just a big fat collection of Stephen King stories, and it's and it's it's a, a really hell of a lot of fun. I mean, his stories can be, you know, most of the time they're really kind of stupid. You know, I said that about yeah. um like Night Shift, but he just has a way of of making them engaging, and uh, I I sense a lot of like a lack of pretension in his work. So he just likes kind of throwing out there what he throws out there, um, and you know the, it does there's something winning about the way he approaches it, no matter how, I mean, the book, the stories are really dumb, you know, I'm reading one right now about a a finger sticking out of a drain. You know, this guy goes into his bathroom and he sees a finger sticking out of his drain. And then the finger kind of terrorizes him for the rest of the story. That's ridiculous. (laughs) But, but Stephen King just has this way of making them amusing and funny and sometimes scarier than they should be, you know, in a story like that. But anyway, it, it also got me thinking, which will help us to segue into our episode, you know, uh, Stephen, you know, Stephen hey, King. Hey, dude, look, sorry to interrupt. Um, I just want to say it a couple of times it cut out re- while you were talking just there, just kind of briefly kind of cut out. So I, I, I'll just mention that to you. I don't know if you hear that and I don't know if my, our listeners will hear it, oh, but you okay. may, if you're walking, if you're walking around or anything like that, you may try to, do what you can to reduce that, but it only happened a few times. So we'll see. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm in, I'm in a different part of my house, but I'm, 
stationary. So hopefully, hopefully we'll be all right. Um, okay. I'll let, I'll let you know if I, if I keep hearing it, this is, this is live without a net folks. So we're just going to be informal about it, but go ahead. You were, I think. Yeah. Well, it just reading these stories got me thinking, you know, as it often, and anytime I read any story collection gets me thinking about the short story format. And I know the short story format is a big part of what we're going to discuss with Jim Shepard's work. So anyway, uh, there was generated a lot of thoughts in my mind about, you know, the tremendous contrast between Jim Shepard's short stories and Stephen King's short stories. But I'll leave it there with Stephen King, John. And why don't we just take a quick break and then we'll launch into the meat of our episode. That sounds great. Okay, so I'm going to kick it over to you in a second here, John. So the way I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this episode. Um, since before, since probably before we even were really serious about doing a podcast, we've sort of circled around the idea of discussing one way or another the work of one writer that really makes makes a you know has made an impact on both of us, means a lot to both of us, and. This is the episode where we're going to do it, but when we come around to doing it, we're doing it with a writer that is a little bit more obscure and a lot of people may not know. So I decided that I would come up with a couple, you know, discussion questions that I would throw to you to kind of start us off here. And we'll just kind of audible it along the way if we need to. But so the first question I want to ask is, um, can you first explain what dealer's choice means, John? Because you and I discussed it, but I'll let I'll let you explain it. And then, why did we choose for the first in this series, the writer Jim Shepard? All right, yeah, um, that's that. Those are good setup questions. I'm I'm excited to be kind of you know inaugurating sort of a new little series here, which is called Dealer's Choice. And I mean, it, it's sort of self-explanatory, but but Dealer's Choice, you know, episodes are going to be where uh, Jude and I. Uh, decide is to that we want to focus on one writer in particular and just kind of go deep with that writer. And we just, you know, kind of reserve the right to sort of choose, you know, who we, who we may want to feature. It may be somebody who is well known, but, uh, or was important to us at one point in our lives. And we kind of want to revisit, maybe haven't read in a while, or it will be one that we just, we maybe isn't as well known case with Jim Shepard, but we feel there's such great value in reading their work that we really just want to uh, highlight that and and uh, encourage others to dive into the, the writer's work, but also try to explain, you know, why it's why it's valuable, why, why, you know, what people may be missing if they haven't read the work of that particular writer. So so dealer's choice is broad. It's just it's just an episode where we just kind of pick a topic of interest and try to explain to our listeners why we, we find it so compelling and interesting and with the hopes that maybe um, they, they also will feel inspired to, to dive into that particular writer's work either more than they have or maybe for the first time. 
And so with Jim Shepard, why did we choose to lead off with Jim Shepard? I mean, I, there's a lot of reasons for that, which we're, we're going to get into. One of which we've already mentioned a few times is just that he, he is a highly esteemed American writer and a, a writer of great versatility. As I said, he writes short stories. He writes, he's written several novels. He writes essays. Um, and and uh, he's, he's always just been very penetrating and insightful, but he's just, he just is not outside of like, quote unquote, literary circles. He just is not that well known. But the incredible range of his interests and subjects that he writes about and combined with his, uh, what I think we've both, you know, on our own and, and together in discussing it, we've both realized is what I would call his incredible humanity and empathy as a writer. To me, Jim Shepard represents a, an incredibly rare talent in that he, he has amazing technical gifts, and we'll get into that. And by that, I don't necessarily mean only the, the, the craft of writing, but I mean what the subject he chooses to write about and his depth of understanding about what he writes about goes very, very deep, probably as deep as anybody I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, just incredible humanity. When I read Jim Shepard, I feel like I'm learning from an encyclopedia. And at the same time, I'm also getting what I would call an education and empathy. He's helping me to literally to become a better human being. And that's what I would describe as the magic or, or, or the value, the great value in Jim Shepard that uh, I can't think of very many writers who, who bring all that to the table. And I think really that's the reason why we want to highlight him. And we also just, you know, we're both as all re- anybody who reads a lot, you know, you get excited about a particular writer, you want to recommend them. And if it's a writer that's not as well known, someone like Thomas Ligotti, like you brought up in our, our tales of terror episode, right. where not a lot of people have read that story, the frolic that you talked about, well, you, you, you just, you just can't continue. You're like, you've got to read this story. It's amazing. Well, just about everything that I've ever read from Jim Shepard, I've felt I, I got to get other people to read this. So, you know, and I, you, that's just rare. You know, you don't usually with writers, even writers that we love, you know, it's sometimes it's hit or miss. You've said that with Stephen King and who's, who's one of your favorite writers, but uh, with Shepard, almost everything I read by him, I, I want to hand to somebody else immediately. And that's really, I think that's kind of the driving factor behind, behind this show. Cause I, I think we both feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have another question that works to follow up with kind of immediately, but, but really quick, I'll just, um, just throw in a couple of my own opening thoughts on Jim Shepard. Um, I'm super excited because, yeah. you know, we're both really big fans of Jim Shepard. And, uh, but I, I, it's interesting the way that you were talking about, and we discussed before we, you know, when we pre- prepared to do the show talking about empathy and I listened to a couple podcasts in which Jim Shepard was talking about his process. And one of the things I jotted down that he said is literature attempts to make an empathetic reader, which is basically what you just said. And mm. I too, I too feel that very much when I'm reading Jim Shepard, like I feel like, um, and he said it in a couple different ways, like, you know, when literature is working at its best, it's kind of working on the reader and almost, you know, at least from Jim Shepard's perspective, um, it, it, it works when it's kind of almost even helping to make you into a better human, you know, which is one of the things that you and I have been discussing kind of offhandedly all along. And um, 
I would just yeah. also say we're going to get into all the details of Shepard's work and our opinion of it. But I would just also say I very much agree with you. In, in some way, it's different from almost every other writer I can think of reading his stuff. And that's why how we got here with it, with this episode. I, you feel like, you know, people got to be reading this guy, you know, and uh, and I get that impression overwhelmingly when I read his material, too. So and we're going to get into all kinds of discussion about why. But just so my quick follow up question to you, John, is that kind of makes sense and flows from this is, can you say really briefly, like when what was your first awareness of Jim, she Jim Shepard? Like when did you first learn that he was out there um, leading up to, you know, you reading one of his books? Yeah, I can. And, and it's appropriate to be answering that question in the context of this discussion, because I, I first heard about Shepard from you. Um, I was completely, completely unaware of Jim Shepard as as a person, as a writer, as anything. And I I think I may, I may not remember this correctly. I know I heard of Jim Shepard from you. Um, and I think you may, and you can explain this yourself, but I think you may have come to know of Jim Shepard because of his friendship with the writer Ron Hansen, who's That's one right. of your favorite, who's one of your favorite writers and, and a writer I, I love as well. So it's kind of sometimes one writer leads to another. And I think that's how you first heard about Shepard. And I don't, re I'm trying to, I believe what happened was, I don't know, and this is right around his, he had a collection that had just come out, a short story collection. Uh, the first one that he had released in quite some time. And it was called um, Like You'd Understand Anyway, which is a title that grabs your attention right out of the gate. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it's just such an unusual and unique title you know, and, uh, sardonic and, you know, it was witty. And so that kind of grabs your attention, but I, I don't know if you had read the book or you just read one story, but anyway, um, you had discovered that the lead story in that volume, which is, which is called the zero meter diving team was available Ooh. online. And you said essentially, and this is funny, we're going to keep set using this phrase. And it's funny because Jim Shepard, I think co-edited a volume of some of his favorite short story writer, uh, short stories that was called, you've got to read this. And right. You're stealing my it, thunder and, a little, but, but we'll get into it. Okay. Well, sorry. But anyway, that's, that's all right. It's almost exactly what you said to me about Jim <laughs> Shepard's story, the zero meeting meter diving team. You've got to read this. And I said, okay, because you know, that we talked from the outset of this show, you know, our, our, uh, our bona fides in books are well established, at least to us. You know, right. <laughs> one of us, one in of our us minds. recommends something. Yeah, we, we jump on it, and I did. And that story absolutely knocked my socks off in a number on a number of levels. I was I was stunned when I read that story. It's still one of my favorite stories. Of this. We'll probably get into it a little later. I won't get into all of it, what it's about. I'm sure it'll come up again. But I, it is rare in my life that I've been kind of blown away by a short story as I was by that one. I just, it, it, it was uh, the, the level of detail in it, how, how technically uh, knowledgeable it was, and also uh, how moving it was. And, and I'll just say it's a story about the Cher Chernobyl disaster. And mm -hmm. it just absolutely, it kind of blew my mind. It, it literally knocked me back on my chair. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, knew, I knew I had to read the rest of the book. And so I, you know, quickly 
procured like you'd understand anyway and ripped through it. And uh, I was hooked. I was just amazed. So that's how I came to Shepherd first. So thank yeah, you that's... for that. <laughs> well, it goes both ways, as we've been saying in all these episodes. But uh, yeah, for me, really quick, because we'll have to keep moving because I've, I've been so inspired to ask you a couple more of my questions. But um, I don't want to go too Great. fast. But so for me, though, with Jim Shepard, it's like you said, writers flow from writers. And, and I have kind yeah. of an emotional connection there also. So if anybody was listening to our podcast last week about the trilogies, I mentioned the Lord of the Rings trilogy which I received from you in an omnibus edition as a gift for graduating from uh, the creative writing program at the new school in New York city. Well, right. That book I have coupled in my memory and in my em emotional bank with another volume that I received for the same reason. But this was from my girlfriend at the time, my wife, Kelly. She gave me a book also for graduating from the new school. And that book she knew, uh, you know, cause we had, gotten to know each other i think we were engaged i'm not sure yeah when i graduated i might have that wrong but she knew that i loved the writer ron shepherd uh ron shepherd <laughs> i just i just did a mashup she knew yeah. that i that i loved ron hansen and she she saw the uh, the huge volume of stories called you've got to read this that you just mentioned which was edited oh, by ron awesome. ron hansen and jim shepherd who were close friends oh, okay. but i didn't I know that, that. So she, there you go yeah. yeah, she gave that to me with an inscription for graduating from from the master's program. So th those two books are coupled together for me and they both mean a lot to me. Um, but I didn't I was like you. I didn't know a darn thing about Jim Shepard, but I sure knew who Ron Hansen was. But then, you know, at, because he was buddies with Ron Hansen and because of, and the, that volume of stories, I think it's still in print. I'm, it may not be called You've Got to Read This. Um, the concept is they found a bunch of writers to introduce the subtitle is writers introduced it writers introduce stories that held them in awe. And so mm. Hanson and Jim Shepard and a bunch of other contemporary writers wrote introductions for short stories that they were kind of blown away by. So I read that volume and then Jim Shepard was kind of in my, sorry, we have garbage trucks out here. If you can hear noise. Um, this is live, folks. But Jim Shepard was yeah, in my, my... Were you going to say something? I was just... I'm not really hearing anything. Okay. Okay. No, We'll move on. Um, Jim Shepard was in my mind from that point on. So, and then... But I didn't, I didn't read him until... I guess there was some press around the, the story collection, like you'd understand anyway, which came out not until 2011. So this was like, you know, 10 or 11 years after I graduated from the program. So I had oh, I hadn't wow. read him before that that I can remember unless I'm forgetting something. But anyway, that story collection came out. I found the zero meeting, the zero meter diving team. I read it. I immediately got the book from the library. And then I remember you and me and our little brother were going out to the Midwest to go to a football game at Notre Dame where our older brother went to school. I had the book with me in the back of the car during that eight hour drive and I was reading it and that book just blew my head off. Kind of like yeah. you were, you were saying. And from that point on, I was, I was on board with anything that Jim Shepard wrote and I still am. So that, that was my way into Jim Shepard 
was uh, that collection, which is, I have to say, is probably one of my all time favorite short story collections. I know you and I yeah, are thinking it's, about it's, it's, Go ahead. It's a stunner. I, I was going to say it's really uh, we'll probably get into it a little more, but wow. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it, it's definitely one of, I would put in my top three or top five uh, short story collections that I've read in my life. And so speaking of stories, John, I think we are probably going to spend more time on Jim Shepard as a short story writer. Cause as John explained, he's both a novels. He has, uh, I think six or seven novels and uh, four, maybe four or five short story collections. But I want to, I want to ask you a question really quick and we'll, we'll just cover this briefly. Um, because I know that, and the reason why we'll just do it briefly is because I know you're less familiar with Jim Shepard's novels than okay. I am. Dude, um, the audio is hanging up every now and then. So I don't know. Are you able to go to a different part of the house or? Um, well, I can try. If you're not, uh, just forge forward, but. Okay. I'm getting a little like delayed. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to transition here. Um, anyway, let me just pose my question. Then I'll try to move. Um, I know that you, I've read a number of Jim Shepard's novels and I think you've only read one of them, but so we can cover this kind of quickly, but based on the one that you've read, I mean, is there a difference to you that stands out between his, the novel that you've read and his short story style? Why don't we, why don't we, uh, it's cutting out. Why don't we take a break and, and, and um, we'll start it up again. Okay. Sounds good. All right. All right, John. Yeah. Let's keep rolling. All right. We'll keep rolling. I, uh, that frazzled me a little bit. So I apologize to our listeners, but um, I'm, I moved to another part of the house. I, I'm not sure if I'll have any additional problems, but let's keep going. And who knows if it's so, your side. I mean, I'm, I'm staying in one place that I usually do this from, but you know, we'll just keep trying. Okay. So uh, anyway, I was starting to say like, um, and I was saying that we can cover this quickly, but I just uh, did you have any observations to make that have to do with uh, like the difference between Jim Shepard, the novelist and Jim Shepard, the short story writer, even though I know that you're a lot more familiar with his short stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you touched on it. a little hard to answer because I've only read one of his novels. And I know you've read more, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, uh, I, I did find it interesting. You know, it seems like he started his car career primarily as a novelist and I, he may have been writing short stories all along, long in the background, but if you look at his career, he has a string of five or six novels, I think in a row. And there's one, short story collection in there early on called batting against Castro, which is probably the, the collection that we won't really touch on here. Um, I believe he has four others that have come, you know, in later years, but when he started out, he, he kind of was, was fixated on writing novels. He has a series of them. Um, and but so it's sort of ironic that, you know, as we discussed already, when I got to know him, I, I, I knew him almost exclusively as a short story writer. And then you kind of learn more about him and you realize he has this whole background as a novelist. And um, 
really since we've been re- reading him, Jude, uh, I don't, since we've been reading him, which is, as you said, 2010, 2011, I think he's only produced one novel. Isn't that right? Which was a, an award-winning novel um, somewhat recently. Uh, and that would be the book of Aaron. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think you are right. So I know him primarily as a short story writer, just through my own experience and through what he's put out in the last, you know, it's almost conditioned to being primarily a writer of short fiction. And if he's got a novel in him, you know, he'll, he'll work on that too. So there, there seems to be this sort of like almost a seesaw type quality to his career almost all novels in the beginning and one short story collection and now it's almost all and the occasional novel i don't know if that really answers your question but that's sort of the best i can do um just on the strength of having only read one uh i will say though as my last comment the one novel i did read i saw a lot of commonality and, and through lines and uh, between that novel and and what he's doing in a short fiction. So to me, it felt very much like the same writer, but I have not read uh, either the book of Aaron or any of his earlier novels. Yeah. Well, it's not really a fair question because you just haven't read enough, but like, so for me, and I, I will just, I'll make an observation and then we'll, you know, and perhaps I'll return to the novels a little bit later. So I, I've read, um, I've actually read five of his novels. So his first book was a novel called, called flights and then he has another uh, other novels that i've read are there's one called paper doll and then there's a novel called nosferatu which is about the filmmaker who made that classic horror movie nosferatu from the 1920s and then there's yep. a novel there's a novel called project x that we'll probably talk about a little bit because that's the one that you read and then um the mm-hmm. book of Aaron is the one that he published within the last few years and that's a, a, a holocaust novel um, but for me, his, his novels are, they're, they're similar to his stories in that they're, 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 there's a wide variation between all of them and they, and they're on very different and wildly various subjects. Um, like flights is a coming of age novel about like an adolescent youth, you know, growing up in the suburbs, paper dolls, a world war two novel about fighter pilots in World War II. It couldn't be more different. And then Nosferatu came after that, which was about a German filmmaker, F.W. Murnau. Is that his name? The guy yeah, that, yeah. It's like a historical novel about the making of the film Nosferatu. But you can see how ambitious wow. the subjects are and how various they are. But, but generally speaking, Jim Shepard's novels don't grip me in the same way that his short stories do. And I've kind of wondered about why as I've you know, read through both of the formats that he's, you know, the best known for. Um, but I don't think we're going to solve that. Like I, I, they're a lot less compelling to me with the, I would say with the exception of project X, which I just read recently in preparation for this episode that we'll talk about soon, um, which was awesome. Uh, amazing novel. And I did happen to read a second book, which is called paper doll, the, the novel about the world war two fighter pilot pilots. And that was very impressive, especially for somebody who's never even served in the military, let alone been a pilot, let alone had any involvement personally with World War II because he's not old enough. So, um, mm-hmm. but it, it's interesting to consider, you know, I, I wonder if other Jim Shepard readers have the same experience, but to me, he seems a little bit more accomplished in the short story format. And we're going to, I think, 
I suspect that we're going to sort of dive in more to the stories than the novels. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so anyway, um, agreed. So with that, John, I think it'd be a good time to kind of dive in to Jim Shepard, the short story writer. And because there's a lot that probably both of us has to have to say about his, his stories, um, what we know about how he writes, writes them, the, the subjects matter, the subject matter that they talk about and um, they're both technical and, uh, you know, um, stylistic, you know, excellence. So just to start the conversation off, John, what would you say distinguishes a Jim Shepard short story from other short stories in like the literary world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, and I would just on the subject really quickly, cause you a- asked the question, it was a good one, you know, about Jim Shepard, the novelist and Jim Shepard, the short story writer. And I'm saying this, it's kind of unfair for me to say this because again, I've only read one novel, but I'm saying this a lot, drawing a lot from your experience since it we're so connected. And it, it sounds to me like Jim Shepard is an accomplished novelist and a very competent one. I don't want that to sound condescending in any way, because obviously he can write rings around me or and most other people. But it sounds like he's an accomplished novelist, but a spectacular short story writer that's that maybe that's just my opinion and maybe he would bristle at that characterization he probably would but um you know uh, he, he does some pretty incredible things with his novels but it's the short stories so if i were directing somebody to start reading jim shepherd i would absolutely have them start with the uh recent three or four volume of short stories yeah um me too. Even a, a lot of people, by the way, it's interesting. This is a whole other subject that we could we could go down this path and spend a while on. We won't, but I hear from a lot of people, yeah, who are big time readers of fiction, but they they don't read short fiction either. They're just not inclined to, or maybe they haven't read enough uh, uh, good examples of short fiction, or maybe they they prefer a longer story with a winding plot. I'm not sure what it is but I'm sure you've heard that often too, or just from your experience talking to other people who read. Um, sometimes you bring up a collection of short stories and people kind of look at you funny or, or like, yeah, I don't, you know, that, does, that doesn't interest me. I'm not sure why, yeah. um, but it's almost like short stories in general seem to have this, you know, kind of a, I don't know. Uh, like you have to be sort of a connoisseur or like an Epicurean, like, like, like you'd call an Epicurean, and analogously in food or a foodie who really appreciates like these kind of obscure or, you know, delicacies, short stories feel a little bit like that. If you're sort of an quote unquote Epicurean reader, you appreciate short stories because they're so finely crafted and well-made and everything. But it seems, it almost seems like uh, for a lot of people, they, they're almost like a, not a more refined taste, but just something more like niche or uh, unique and that's a shame because, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to Jim Shepard, I think there's so much richness in his short fiction and you have to start, well, I'm kind of, I'm not really, let me take a step back. Cause I'm not really, uh, answering what you asked, which is what, what is unique about a Jim Shepard short story. And it's tough to answer because the, the first thing you have to talk about with Jim Shepard is, is the wide, is the incredible range of 
topics that he writes about. Right. I mean, which we'll probably get to in a minute, but I mean, I would character Jim Shepard clearly seems to be what I would call a research junkie. Mm-hmm. You know, he, if you read any of his recent um, collections of short fiction, which and there have been three or four of them, we'll, I'll just go through them quickly. You know, like you under, like you to understand anyway. And that was followed up by a collection called uh, you think that's bad. And then he has a, a kind of a compilation of his short fiction, which is new and collected stories that was called love and hydrogen. And then his most recent book is a, well, not most recent collection of short stories was called The World to Come. So all of those collections, I think, are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the, the and, and the range of topics that he writes about is just astonishing. And we can get into that in a minute. Um, but I think there are several, you know, I was thinking about what makes what makes a Jim Shepard story. And I there, there's a number of common themes that come up again and again in Jim Shepard's stories. And I know you'll be nodding your head at every one of them. And perhaps the most obvious one is he loves to write about catastrophes, either yeah. natural catastrophes or man-made catastrophes. I already mentioned he wrote a short story about uh, the Chernobyl disaster. Mm-hmm. He wrote another uh, incredibly memorable short story about uh, the collapse of a, of a signal tower that was erected out into the out way out in the Atlantic ocean. Then based on an actual event that just couldn't withstand the weather and collapsed. It was this mm-hmm. huge catastrophe. Um, and, and along with that, he likes to write survival stories. So people who he's got a, a notable story called your, your fate hurdles down at you, which is about people who are studying avalanches. And of course they get caught in an avalanche, <laughs> you know, um, and actually, I, survival stories may be a little bit of a misnomer because a lot of times people don't survive <laughs> what he's right. What he's talking right. about. <laughs> so he's got this he's got this natural bent to write about catastrophes one way or another. But he also writes it, almost every one of his stories within the context of something, you know, catastrophic happening or or emergent. He also writes very movingly about fa- family dynamics and it could be marriages. It could be fathers and sons. It could be, you know adult children with their parents. Um, so that is a through line. He's able to somehow weave family dynamics in to many of his stories that are also about other things. Yeah. So I find that to be interesting about him. He also and has there, an affinity and there, just to, just to interrupt for a second. It's not entirely this way because we know of some examples, but they're often uh, relationships with men. So either fathers and sons, and frequently, I know another theme that you probably noticed is Jim Shepard writes about brotherhood, about brothers. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, that's that. I absolutely agree. And um, another, but so we're describing what 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 I think already sounds like a very interesting writer. But then he also has a thing for like creatures, like in the movie world, you call creature like creature features. Mm-hmm. Jim Shepard has a has a propensity to write about interesting creatures, and uh, uh, there are some examples I could give. He wrote about a um, uh, uh, special effects man who was working on the set of the original Godzilla movie yeah. In, yeah. in Japan. <laughs> he famously wrote a story from the point of view of the creature of the Black Lagoon. Right, 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 right. <laughs> he wrote another story about the megalodon, and there's a, a one that's still alive, even though they're believed to be extinct for millions of years, millions and millions of years. 
and there are other examples that you you know proto scorpions of the silurian is just one of his titles i mean right right. it's awesome what's the what's a what's a megalodon john oh a megalodon was is is the largest shark uh in recorded history right so there was an ancient shark that's right that's long been known or thought to be extinct and he imagines what if there is still uh megalodon that's alive lurking between the in the bottom of the oceans around antarctica because a megalodon tooth is found and instead of being all brown and kind of corroded it's white meaning that it's recent so mm-hmm. that's the kind of that's the kind of setup you'll often find in a jim shepherd story and of course the guy can't there's so much adventure in his stories and I'm going on for a long time, but I'll, uh, the, the other thing I would say, and I put this under the category for lack of a better term of, of engineering. I, I mentioned he was a research junkie. Well, he just has a knack and an affinity towards knowing how things work, how complicated concepts and uh, structures work and going into great detail in his stories about that. So just, you know, I mentioned the Chernobyl disaster that gets into some fascinating details about exactly how that catastrophe happened. Um, safety tips for living alone, which is the story about the collapsed signal tower. And he explains exactly how that, how the ocean and the various physical forces took down this enormous steel tower, uh, the ocean of air, which was about uh, discovering how to create a balloon that will fly uh, in France He's got a story called The Netherlands Lives with Water, which is all about the, the water protection structures in, the, in various cities across the Netherlands and how, the, how they're being threatened because of rising oceans. Love and Hydrogen, which is a story set in, on the Hindenburg, the night that it explodes and goes down in flames. He explains in great detail exactly how that happened. I mean, you <laughs> get the idea, you know. <laughs> So that's, you know, I really want to just kind of emphasize the fascinating range of topics that, that he writes about, but also the great technical ability and the research that he puts into his stories that really kind of immerses you in whatever he's writing about. And it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, did you have other thoughts or are you handing it over? <laughs> no, I'm handing it over. I mean, I, I, I have plenty of other thoughts, but I want to give you, a, I've been talking for a long time, so I want to give you a chance to speak and respond well that's okay because there's like uh, you know I, I have a million things i want to say too but i wanted these things that you're talking about to be in this episode so I'm, I'm glad that you were saying what you were saying so um yeah i was just really i'm listening to you talk about the short story format in general and you know unfortunately you're right there is kind of a and i don't really know what the reason for this is either but there's this distinction people make with short stories um with the exception of people like Stephen King or the stories I was talking about earlier. Um, unfortunately, there's kind of a whiff of pretense or, you know, of like uh, an uppity kind of flavor that people some, for some reason have about short fiction, you know, and you were getting at that earlier. Um, yeah. That's almost that- like the, I, I'm, I'm interrupting brutally, but that's almost like what I would call the New Yorker effect. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the New Yorker, is known for featuring short stories. And I really wonder if, and it's also very stuffy and I really wonder if something, you know, or the Atlantic or, you know, the kind of channels that people encounter short stories has something to do with this, with the, uh, the taste that they leave in your mouth or the whiff of pretension that you're talking about, but go ahead. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then another factor with it is that complicates things, John, as you know, a lot of the real masters of the form, you know, are, are people who have written historically anyway, have written their stories are really kind of interior and quiet. Um, the best example I can think yeah. of is Anton Chekhov, who every yeah. virtually yeah, every writer, every, every writer I've ever heard talk about short stories holds him up as a paragon of the form. But his stories are all about internal moments and they there's not a lot going on. Uh, two other examples I can think of William Trevor, the great short story writer and novelist from Ireland. Um, but it's probably best known for his short stories. His short stories are always sort of small in scope and humble and they verge and they hinge on interior moments or subtleties. <laughs> and another good example of that is another acknowledged master of the short story form by any yardstick, which is Alice Monroe from Canada, you know, and yeah. all, and most of her stories are about, um, small moments and, and interior landscapes, particularly with women, you know, and there, and she's amazing. But I say all that to say, John, you know, and, and I'm reinforcing what you're saying, a Jim, and I want our listeners, a Jim Shepard story is vastly different from whatever taste, you know, like the New Yorker or the short story form, or even some of these acknowledged masters like Chekhov and Alice Monroe, William Trevor and all these other people, John McGahern. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. Even people like Raymond Carver, you know, Jim Shepard's story is very different and it's an experience like a, a visceral moving kind of gets under your skin experience. So I, I really want people to know that because it's, it's, it's very different from, other short story writers. And I agree with you. I would steer people to a short fiction, but just to emphasize, you know, and I think you made this point well enough, but the diversity. So I was recently rereading like you'd understand anyway, <clears throat> which, uh, excuse me, which I don't really like that title. I think it has some of Jim Shepard's sort of wry sense of humor, but I, I yeah. still don't really understand why it's called that. But anyway, um, when I was rereading it recently, I jotted in pencil next to each story on the table of contents, like two words of what the story was about. So just to reinforce the point, you know, there's a, the one story is about Chernobyl. One story is about brothers in a broken family situation. One story is set in Roman times about the construction of Hadrian's wall. One is a story about um, high school football in Texas. Then there's one about the search, <laughs> the search for the Yeti in the Himalayas. Yeah, by Nazis. <laughs> by Nazis, yeah. <laughs> by, by Nazis, good good point. There's another one called Pleasure Pleasure Boating in Latuya Bay, which is set in, uh, I think, Alaska. And it's about seismic activity out in the wilds of Alaska. Um, wow. the, first, the first South Central Australian expedition is about people in 1840 trying to navigate their way across the Australian outback. Oh, man, that's a great one. Then you have a story set in ancient Greece with two brothers that are in battle and like with like the Greek army in ancient times. After that, there's a story about the first Soviet woman in space, which is unbelievable <laughs> that he could have written a story like that. Followed and by it's also like a love story. That's like a love story, too, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And we could talk about that one. Followed by a story that's yeah. set in a summer camp with adolescents. And after that, there's a story about executioners in 18th century France. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so that's so great. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. And all three of the story collections that John mentioned, the last three, like you'd understand anyway, you think that's bad. And the world to come are jammed with stories like that. And it's absolutely incredible. You know, the range and just the, the, the variety of experience you get from a Jim Shepard short story collection. So I'll, I'll, oh, I'll leave it there. But you, you take it from here and we'll keep going. I will, because I, that's a great, I'm so glad you did that. And I'll just add to that because I, we, you know, the twin mind again, I did something very similar. I jotted down, you know, what some of his stories are about just to give you, you know, a sense of the range which you already got from Jude's comments, but I'll add a few others on. I mean, if that's not interesting enough, one of my favorite, (laughs) one of my very favorite shepherd stories, I read this twice in preparation for, for this episode is about the early years of the band, The Who. And it's and it's g- geniusly called Won't Get Fooled Again. And it, that's just, it's written from the point of view of John Entwistle, who's like the George Harrison of, of you know, of the uh, the Who, kind of the Who's quiet good? one. And uh, it's, it's just, it's incredible. It's all about like how loud and rambunctious and rude and destructive they were when in their younger years. And of course, that famously led to the demise of Keith Moon, their drummer. He's kind of a focus of the story. But it's it's fascinating just to see he literally just kind of puts you in these incredibly seedy, you know, British pubs like in, in working class neighborhoods when they're playing and they're just so damn loud and and uh, they're <laughs> You know, there are fights and like just brutal fights while they're playing. And of course, that energizes them to keep playing louder. And and, you know, that they're they're partying, which is legendary. But it's also a really sad story because he kind of puts you in. You kind of feel like you get to know how troubled a soul Keith Moon was and how he just kind of drank himself to death. And it's it's just that's the virtuosity of Jim Shepard. I mean, that story really stuck with me the first time I read it and I read it again recently and it, it just kind of blew me away again. You know, I already mentioned, you know, a, a, a story written from a Japanese point of view of a Japanese special effects technician on the set of the original Godzilla, which is called Gojira. The story is called Gojira King of the Monsters. Well, not only um, that, uh, just to interrupt you, not only that, it's not, it's not just a special effects guy. It is about special effects in 50s Japanese filmmaking, or, or I'm sorry, 50s or 60s Japanese filmmaking, but it's it's literally about the guy in the rubber suit, you know, who play like walking, stomping, stomping over those sets and uh, breathing out fire, you know, and that's unbelievable, you know. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing he's able to, no matter what subject he takes on, I you know, he's able to, not only, he makes it human and he makes it haunting and he makes it, you were talking about how like kind of exciting it is to read his short stories. Is that the word I would use is cinematic? And it's no accident that he's also an excellent writer of essays about films. Absolutely. He has a couple he has a couple collections that have to do with film. But his stories are cinematic. Uh he's got a, a really haunting short story called Minotaur. I don't know if you remember that one. It's the it's the leadoff story from uh You Think That's Bad which really should be said, you think that's bad, but anyway, um, and he, it's what it is, 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 is a story that's about a, a young, a man who joined the military. Um, he, he quit college to join the military in Ivy league college. 
And everybody frowned upon his decision because it was in the, in the late sixties. And, uh, but he, he just had this desire to do it. And he ends up being one of the people who, who, uh, navigates drones that essentially take out suspected terrorists, uh, in kind of Bush era America. Mm. And so Shepard kind of walks you through exactly what that's like. And he, and he is not shy kind of like just highlighting the, the ethics of, of doing something like this and how they would just target somebody and just blow them up, just literally obliterate that person in the middle of a crowded square or, and not really worry about the who's around. Um, and, but, but this is how the story ends. And I just want to kind of give a segment here uh, of, of what Shepard is able to do. So the, the man is reminiscing about how he announced in his class in 1968 at the university of Pennsylvania that he was going to join the army uh, or join the military. And the, and the professor makes these snide comments about him doing that. And so uh, I'll just, I, I want to read the end of this story because it's just, this is the power of Jim Shepard. First of all, it's a fascinating story about that gets you into the details of what these soldiers do who navigate these drones. But this is the kind of punch that he can give you at the end of one of his stories. He mm. says, and there's some language here. So uh, at Penn, my old classics professor had been a big time pacifist. He always went on about having been in Chicago in 68. And on the last day of Dyke, Eros, and Arit, he announced to the class, that one of our number had signed up with the military. I thought to myself, fuck you. I can do whatever I want. I was already the odd man out in that class, the one whose comments made everyone look away and then move on. A pretty girl who I'd ask out, who I'd ask out, shot me a look and then gave herself a pursed lip, little smile and checked her daily planner. So wish him luck, my old prof said, as he commends himself over to the God of chaos. I remember somebody called out, Good luck. And I remember, uh, and I remember being enraged that I might be turning colors. About whom, the professor went on, Homer wrote, whose wrath is relentless, who, tiny at first, grows until her head plows through heaven as she strides the earth, who hurls down bitterness, who breeds suspicion and divides, and who, everywhere she goes, makes our pain proliferate. And that's the end of the story. Mm, And those lines from Homer end the story in which he's just been explaining to you how these soldiers work, you know, navigating drones and basically blowing people out of the, off of the face of the earth without much regard to, to who they are in their lives. That's, that's pretty damn powerful. Yeah. That's that's an example of what Shepard can do. He brings in Homer at the end. So Again, he does his research. He he's incredibly widely read, and he just makes these connections and brings them home in a way that I mean, that kind of punched me in the gut when I read it, and I and I realize people hearing it out of context, it's not the same impact. But I hope I get that gives some idea of what Shepard is able to do. Yeah, he does have moments of really um, emotional, great emotional impact. Um, and he can really get under your skin. And that's a uh, characteristic of many stories. And it's also big in the novel Project X, which we might talk about a little bit. But I did want to say just also on, on the subject of his story, just on like a personal note, like he, you know, I'm very fat because I try to write short fiction as well. And writing short stories has always been one of the most difficult things I've ever tried to do. I find them extremely hard to write. 
And whenever I write one and I think it's like halfway decent, I'm always very proud of myself because it's just, you know, it's a very, very hard form to master. So I'm already impressed with by what Shepard can do, even all the diversity and the, you know, the, the four volumes and just like the, the variety of subjects, notwithstanding, just to be able to write a story that coheres is very, very difficult. But um, yes. I personally wrote two stories that that I'm personally proud of that, you know, people wouldn't be familiar with. Um, one of them was called The Beauty and the Broken Bone. And it was and, and it was set. I set the story in Ghana, Africa. Um, and another story that I wrote is called, more recently is called Door in the Air. And it's about a female wounded Marine. So uh, mm. a, a woman who had been wounded in the war trying to come back and sort of assimilate into society. I only mentioned those two stories because I have no business writing about either of those subjects, but I was inspired to do it by writers like Jim Shepard because he, he, you know, I'm also very interested in, you know, writing stories and writing fiction. And I, I'm just saying from a personal point of view, I find him to be very inspiring and I'm thankful for his work because basically I said to myself, well, if somebody else can do this, Maybe I can give it a go as well. I'm not saying they're good stories, but I never, never would have tried to take on, you know, stories about those two subject matters in particular without having read the work of Jim Shepard. So that's the kind of thing that that's the kind of footprint that he can leave on uh, other artists as well. Like he's just like his work is pretty inspiring in that way. Yeah. And I, uh, I uh, by the way, I've read both of those short stories and I enjoy them both. I think Adore door in the air is really one of the best that, that you've written in it. And I would, I would say in the context of this discussion, it is very shepherd like mm -hmm. because it, it combines a number of subjects and has great empathy for the lead uh, character in that story, which is that wounded female veteran. So that's like, you know, if you haven't gathered from, from this episode already, that's about as high a compliment as I can give that particular story. But, you know, uh, you also highlight something that we've talked about off the show for a long time. And it's funny, I hate to keep bringing up this writer, but he, he just finds a way somehow almost irritatingly to like worm his way into every conversation we have. And that's T.C. Boyle. Um, <laughs> but we talk, you know, T.C. Boyle very famously and very vocally talks a lot about, I think, kind of hubristically, you know, a little bit arrogantly, which is, which is kind of part of how he rolls, but uh, about how he never does research for the subjects he writes about. And he writes very diversely too. And he just kind of lets his imagination do the walking, you know? And um, I find that a little hard to believe, but it, maybe if that's the way that it goes, but it, then fine. But uh, in contrast, Jim Shepard is a writer who writes with at least as much, you know, breadth, and 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 uh range of topics but he does a ton of research for and we know that because he you pick up one of his short story volumes and, and he always has a work cited or here are the works that i was reading when i when i wrote these stories and it goes on for pages and some of them are incredibly arcane <laughs> like you know technical manuals and things yeah but um you know so it's just a, it's just a different approach but uh I really appreciate that Shepard is, you know, just like I said, kind of a research junkie. He'll, he'll show you and tell you about what he was reading that went into his stories, but he's able to imbue the stories with such a level of technical, technical detail 
And I want to touch on, this is kind of, we're bouncing all over the place, Jude. I hope you don't mind, but I, I, I had a thought no, no. while I was preparing, preparing for this episode. I thought I would run, run it by you. It's the first time I've ever thought this, but it occurred to me that his, he has one kind of compilation of his short fiction. That's new and collected stories. Right. Right. And it's called love and hydrogen, love and hydrogen. And it occurred to me how that is the perfect Jim Shepard omnibus title because love is very, you know, subjective and humane and mysterious and hydrogen. It just is a completely different vibe. It's just very, you know, scientific, almost right. technical. And that's, it never occurred to me before. Maybe it did the first time you picked it up, but I thought love and hydrogen. First of all, it gives you pause because you go, those two things, you don't usually hear them together. Yeah. They that, don't go together, <laughs> but that's Jim Shepard. That's what he does. He, he, he plums the mysteries of the human. And he also will explain to you exactly what happened with the hydrogen molecules that blew up the Hindenburg. Right, right, you know? right, right. <laughs> and I, it just occurred to me how, what a brilliant kind of juxtaposition that is and how Jim Shepard that is to have a collection of stories and call it love and hydrogen, you know? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. You... That's Jim Shepard, the, the technical virtuosity combined with just incredible human uh, empathy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't quite make that follow that thought up all the way through either. Although you're struck by love and hydrogen, you know, that it definitely gives you a pause. You go, what, you know, and you yeah, think about it. Absolutely. You do uh, what you were talking to me about, like off, off, offline, you know, the other day about the doggy head tilt, you know, that's, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. like, the, like it, it, you, yeah. that's what you do, but I'm so glad you brought up though, because I wanted to ask you about this, um, but I didn't know how to because I know like, you know, you and I are both interested very much. And of course, obviously novel, short stories, fiction, books, but I'm a little bit more into craft and process of writing these things because I do it myself and you don't as much, although, you you know, you're, you're a great reader. But it, right. I was thinking down the same lines about what process Jim Shepard must go through. And I did think about T.C. Boyle. And I thought of a third writer that I'll bring up here in a second. But I, I was wondering about like, you know, because it, it's also very interesting just in terms of the, the short story craft. Like, you know, how, of course, there's obviously no one way to do it. You know, famously with fiction, novel writing, short story writing, you know, you can skin a cat, you know, as as many ways as there are people who attempt to write those those stories. But that, you know. It's really fascinating. Like Jim Shepard, like you said, he gives you the whole catalog of like what he was reading to prepare to write the stories. And he is very technical and he does a ton of research, even for one short story. And he puts a huge burden on himself of effort and work in order to do that. But that's obviously something that he's really passionate about doing. And then you have a writer like T.C. Boyle, who I think is somewhere in between, really. Like he does kind of brag about, you know, doing it all with his imagination. But I know for just having followed him for, you know, 20 years or something like that, I know he does a, like a certain amount of note taking, but he's also very mm -hmm. high in his process on doing enough research and taking notes until he hears kind of a voice in his head. And then he lets that voice kind of guide the rest of the work. You know, I don't know how that works, but he, mm -hmm. he will do it to a certain point where he feels like he has that voice. But then to bring a third writer into it, John, um, about 15 years ago or so, 
there was a Pulitzer Prize winning novel called The Known World. And it was written by mm -hmm. uh, an African-American writer who's also an incredible short story writer. His name is Edward P. Jones. Mm -hmm. But he kind of made his mark with this novel called The Known World, which was a historical novel about black Americans who own slaves themselves. And it was set in the middle of the 19th century. And very famously for all the press he did around that book and, and that won the Pulitzer Prize. And it got him like uh, one of those Guggenheim fellowships for genius or no MacArthur genius awards, you know, which is just yeah, a bunch of money right. for being a great writer. Um, and he would say in interviews that his plan was to do a ton of research to write about black slave owners in the middle of the 19th century, but that he got like one third of the way through one book and it was too boring for him. So then he just decided he wasn't going to do any research. And he said that in every interview around that book. And he said, you know, it's on me as the writer. If I tell you it's 1860 in Virginia and I describe some of the surroundings, it's, it, it is until I screw up and put like an airplane in there or something, you know? And so yeah, yeah. famously he did like no research at all, which is also astonishing to me. And he just relied entirely on his imagination. So what's yeah. the best way to go about doing it? I don't know. But I, I do know, though, that like, you know, if they're I'm a, obviously we're great admirers of Jim Shepard's work and, you know, we both highly recommend it. But if there's a knock on him, uh, I could see it being, you know, like in, the, for example, the zero meter diving team and probably love and hydrogen and other stories um, in which he gets very much into what occurs technically like, for example, in the in the Chernobyl disaster, there are times when, you know, because I just reread that story. There are times when you feel like it's reportage or you're getting kind of yeah. like the, the rehash of a, you know, a manual or some article he read that he's just kind of like regurgitating. So you could call that a knock on it. I found it very gripping. And I think he does a great job of interweaving that with his characters and their lives. But sometimes it drifts into that, I guess. So, yeah, 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 anyway. I, could, I, could, I could certainly see that. And I think that's uh, probably deliberately. I think that's why he tries to, he he weaves of uh, a more identifiable or uh, that's not the right word, but um, uh, something you can identify with in story. There's usually a family dynamic like there are brothers in that story. Um, there's a there's a love, you know, affair going on on the Hindenburg when he writes about the technical aspects of that disaster in um, safety tips for living alone, which is about the collapsing uh, uh, communications tower in the Atlantic ocean. He introduces you to a few of the key characters and, and he shares with you phone calls they make with their wives back at home and what their wives and kids are doing. So I think he deliberately tries to weave those elements into those stories so that they're not too technically focused. And, you know, you could debate whether, you know, how successful he is with that. Um, but I think there's a, there's very much a reason why he does that. And to me, I, I agree with you to me, it's very effective. I think you kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, but you know, th that could be debated, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyway. So let's do this, John, cause I, I, I want to cover one other subject that we haven't covered yet, but I just want to, uh, uh, before, before we do that. So I'm going to ask you another question. But before we do that, okay. I'm just going to make one last observation here. <laughs> I just wanted to say this before this episode is over. 
because we've been talking about it and I think we've covered a lot about, um, you know, Jim Shepard's work and his short stories. But uh, I would just say to anybody listening to this, the short story. Um, oh, gosh, what is it? Uh, Safety Tips for Living Alone. That's been mentioned a couple times, which is about this uh, tower out in the uh, I think it's the Gulf of Mexico or in the in the ocean somewhere that was erected during the Cold War. The, the purpose of the tower was to intercept communications from like the Soviets and to give us advanced warning of, uh, you know, what was going on over there. That tower succumbing to the, the strong weather in the Atlantic Ocean. That short story, I just want to leave in people's brains, is one of the most gripping short stories I've ever read in my life. And if you do nothing else <laughs> uh, coming off of this episode, you should find that story or the zero meter diving team about the Chernobyl disaster and read that story front to back. It is absolutely incredible. It is. And at the end of that story about the Texas tower, I, I was I, like my, I literally had white knuckles, <laughs> like gripping the book. Yeah. It is an amazing work of short fiction. So I want to say that. No, I agree. Um, uh, and by the way, uh, uh, cause I read it recently too. It's called the Texas tower because it resembles an oil rig. Um, but actually, the the tower in the story is is off of the Atlantic coast. It's somewhere up off the New England coast, somewhere I think, or somewhere off the Atlantic coast. Um, and I I could be wrong about that, but uh, I agree with the important the salient point here is your recommendation. I agree that that story is phenomenal, and 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 you can't. I know it's on the electric lit or electric literature website because I think that's where it first appeared. Yeah, I was trying to find it. I, I could find part of the story, but couldn't get it all without like a paywall or something. Um, but, oh, really? you know, people should check it out. If you can find it anywhere, you should read it. Yeah, and it's and it's the first it's a lead off story of his most recent uh, volume of short fiction, which is, again, called The World to Come. Right. So, OK, John, I, I don't want to go on too much longer. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about the end of, about what we're reading and uh or what we're planning to read and then tease the next episode. But I do think we should take a few minutes to discuss the one novel that we both read, which is called project X. And I'm going to throw it over to you. I just know that we were both very impressed with that book. And can you talk a little bit about what that book was about and why it made such a big impact on you? Sure. So that, that book, uh, I don't remember the year that it came out to you. Was it like 2008 or nine or, or, I don't or somewhere in the middle of the two thousands might've been earlier, like two thousand earlier. It was, it was Oh four because I remember I was working in New York and I saw it on the shelf. It was Oh four. Okay. And um, when that book came out, uh, there had been a number of high profile shootings in high schools. The most, the most, the one that everyone will remember if you were alive at that time was of course Columbine high school, which happened in 1999. Um, but there are a number of others, and sadly, there have been a number of others uh, since then, uh, horrible shootings in high schools. But there was kind of a rash of them. This is kind of the first big wave that I remember. Uh, no one who was alive when Columbine happened could believe what was unfolding, you know, in front of our eyes on national TV. That was just, you know, uh, beyond description. And so there, and there were a few others after that that happened in sort of a similar fashion. And so Project X is a novel about uh, 
a, a, a middle school student or two middle school students who are lonely and kind of outcasts among their school. And they start plotting uh, some kind of act of revenge in their high school. And uh, I don't think, you know, it's a sort of a spoiler, but the, the book is sort of leading up to whatever they decide to do and, and the event that unfolds and I'll just leave it there. But yeah, the whole book is about these two young guys and how isolated they are and how alone and how uh, they can't connect with really anybody other than each other. And, uh, you know, them being sort of adolescents, they don't know how to channel their anger and their disappointment and their hurt. And this and this novel just kind of puts you into the heads of these two friends at in the days leading up to what they decide to do. And it is absolutely harrowing. And at the same time, I found it to be very moving. Obviously, this is a tough subject. Um, right. and you know it's going to be tough, tough from the outset. But what's so remarkable and what Shepard does so well is he just gets you, he immerses you in their world. He gets you in, inside their heads and you understand their pain mm-hmm. more than anything else, both at home with their peers. You know, these are kids who get beat up by people and bullied. Uh, it's heartbreaking to, to watch his, the one guy's, the main guy's interactions with his parents because they're just missing cues left and right. Um, you know, uh, they're just not clued in. And as a parent, you know, we're both parents and a lot of parents can relate. It's very easy to kind of go about with your busy life and, 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 you know, not be really clued in to what's going on inside your adolescent or your teen. And just reading it as a parent, it's incredibly harrowing to kind of watch this unfold. You know, it's not, gonna, it's not going to end well, and you can just kind of see it unfold. But he, he writes it with great empathy and compassion but also, and there's a ton of humor in it because of the yeah. the, way, the way these two uh, middle school, you know, we're both guys, so the, it's sort of guy humor a lot, you know, the way they sort of talk to each other. But the humor <laughs> never overwhelms or, you know, uh, you know, uh, overwhelms, I guess is the word, the, the sadness that you feel as you're reading this book. And you know, some may say, well, that boy, that doesn't sound like a good time. And it's not in some ways, but it's a, it's a very, it also kind of unfolds like a thriller because it's like a countdown of the last five or six days before this happens. So it's very much a page turner, even though you kind of know what's coming and you're dreading it. Yeah. Um, but what impressed me the most is just how much, how much you, you, I felt like I understand, I understood what these two kids we're dealing with. And I, you know, the, the primary feeling that I got two primary feelings I got one, I thought it was absolutely terrifying Two, even more. So I just thought it was heartbreaking and kind of tragic. And, Mm -hmm. uh, it really, it really kind of laid me flat. And I, I give Shepard all the credit in the world for, for being able to uh, just write a book that has that had, had that effect on me is how I would put it. Yeah, it's, and it's all in like 170 pages, which is just phenomenal by any yardstick that I can think of. Yeah, it's maybe, uh, you yeah. Could, maybe you could talk a little bit about without spoiling, but like because I know you mentioned to me some of the decisions he makes in terms of how he ends the book. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought I thought that was a great summation, and I, I would recommend that book very highly coming out of this episode. 
But I would give it the caveat that, you know, we know some people, I'm thinking of my older brother and other people that we know, and, and this is perfectly legitimate. You know, a lot of people don't really enjoy fiction with dark themes or that are going to a tough place. And I don't know if right. they would necessarily enjoy this book because you know where it's going from the beginning and it's very tragic and it, it really immerses you in, like John said, the pain of these young people. And it's like, you know, it's as painful as when you went through it yourself, practically, you know, adolescence and middle school. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. so it's so impressive, though, uh, you know, just from again, I'm a fiction writer and I just I found like so much that I could admire and um, was worthwhile in the book. It is a tough ride, but yeah, I was, I was, uh, well, I, I do have to say, I said to you offline, like I was, I was, you know, I, I knew what to expect from Jim Shepard by then, but I, I, man, he had me in the mind of, and of course I've been a boy in eighth grade, but he had me in that kid's mind on like the third page of the book when somebody used the word butt wipe talking to somebody else. <laughs> I, <laughs> it was like, you know, and there is tons That's of humor it. in it, but yeah. he said like, you know, it's just like all the other butt wipes that come through here. And I, I, of course, I was like, I was belly laughing, but it was so perfect of a word. Yeah. And you were in that guy's head and you were there for the duration. And I and I thought yeah. and it helps if you're a guy, you know, because, you know, there's you know, you're not going to go through this novel without encountering the word boner. I'm sorry. You know, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you know what you're in for from the first few pages, like you said. <laughs> so maybe, you know, it's more appealing to male readers than women. But it, it, but it's everything you said, John. It's very immersive. <laughs> it's it's very harrowing. And you know where it's going. And to what you brought up. Yeah, I, I did want to mention I was equally as impressed with the book. I mean, we both read it in like 36 hours, both of us, you know, which is kind of amazing. You know, I mean, we just yeah. ripped we just ripped through it. But then I was very interested technically and in the decision making process from the point of view of a fiction writer, the choice he made at the end without giving it away, because you know where it's going. But I thought it was very fascinating. And and actually, I want to make the point he does this also previously in his novel Paper Doll. And I was impressed with this. He takes you up to the cataclysmic event or the climactic event in the story. And then he drops you off mid event. So like. Shepard resists um, what I think a lot of weaker writers probably wouldn't resist, which is like the coda, you know, or like the the last scene with the sun setting or like, you know, you know, or like people holding hands and walking away or something like that. He eschews that in Project X and he also did in Paper Doll in a very different context. But both of them were quite bloody, actually. And he leaves you in the middle of the climax and you're kind of caught. And my breath was kind of like in my chest and the book just ended and you, you don't really know where it goes from there, but it, it don't look good, you know, you know, no. and, and he made that choice. I think, you know, I don't want to, I'm not him. I can't speak for him, but I think he, you know, sort of realized that there's no reason to do like a wrap up or kind of a, a denouement or a little settling down, uh, let alone the, the awful tying things up in a pretty bow. Uh, and for these two particular novels, I think what he was trying to achieve, he had the presence of mind to realize that he had achieved it in the middle of it and just kind of cut it off. And I thought that was impressive, too. Yeah, it makes you it makes you wonder if uh, the Coen brothers to shift to the film world briefly are are fans of his work because Ooh. they could do 
they could do some incredible things. Like, cause I'm thinking of the, the famous end and you know, this, you kind of probably know where I'm going, but the famous end to uh, their film, a serious man. Yeah. Where there's a tornado that's about to hit uh, this. I think it's a, again, a middle school and it it's literally about to hit. And then it just fades to black. You don't get the, you just get them looking into the face of this tornado, the, you know, right into this tornado. And then it just cuts off. Um, or the end of No Country for Old Men, where it cuts off very abruptly. But Shepard will do that. He'll kind of lead you right up to the precipice of something catastrophic that he's been writing about for the whole story. Um, just a, another example is this story called Astounding Stories, which is the one about a guy who goes hunting after this megalodon. And I remember the very end of that, so again, very cinematic, the very end of that story, it literally just ends with like, a, a murky, you know, shape that looks really big, kind of coming up out of the water underneath his boat. The guy's like looking over the boat, you know, into this into the water, and you just see something very murky but very large <laughs> that seems to be emerging, and it just kind of stops there, you know. But uh, that's the kind of thing that Shepard will do. You're right. I mean, he, and in Project X, it's been building up to something. And he sort of gives you that something and, and doesn't, he leaves, he doesn't, he leaves en enough to your imagination, you know? Yeah. So that's a great book too. Um, so let's, let's leave it there, John. I, I'm, I, I'm running up against clock a little bit myself to be truthful. Um, and I feel like there's so much more that we could say about Jim Shepard, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. And uh, can I say, can I make one more point though? I, I yeah, apologize. Yeah. If you, if you wrote down something, go ahead. I wanted to read one more little pat because I, I we've been talking a lot about a lot about Shepard and he writes about a lot of dark stuff and you know catastrophic things. But I want to I would love to end on a, on a note of empathy again and his humanity because I want to emphasize how incredibly rich his writing can be just not from a human standpoint. Great idea. And what I chose for that is this is if I haven't talked to you about this, but there's a passage um, in a, in the title story from his most recent book, which is called the world to come. So this is from a story called the world to come. And it's, it's just, again, with the range that he uh, writes about, it happens to be about uh, a relationship between two lonely farm wives in the 19th century in America who have gone out to the, hinterland and the frontier and they're establishing, you know, homesteads with their husbands. And there's a friendship that develops between these two wives. And eventually, and this is a whole other aspect of it. And Shepard has been known to write about this as well. Eventually blossoms into something more than a friendship mm -hmm. between these two women, but they live quite a ways away from each other. And they, the, the, one of the points of this story that I found kind of astounding is they don't really understand what's happening in their relationship. They don't understand their own feelings. Mm. And so this is a conversation they've kind of, uh, they've become aware that there's more to this friendship than just being friends. And, you know, they have feelings for each other that go deeper. And that's just sort of, that's not my point with this past. What, what I thought this passage that I'm about to read, I thought was just incredibly perceptive about human beings and who find themselves falling in love or what is the nature of love? And so uh, 
they, they're having a conversation after they've kind of realized and, you know, manifested some of their feelings for each other. So, and this is from the point of view of one of them. And they're both really lonely people who are in not good marriages, in at least one case, an abusive marriage. And they're kind of with each other. They're kind of grabbing a rare moment that they're just alone. And she says, and the, the, the narrator says, she asked that I speak. I almost cried out that how, sh how should I have known what was happening to me? There were no instructions booklets of which I was aware. I told her I could feel something rising in me as she approached, like hair on the back of a dog. I told her the thought of her through the week was my shelter, the way the chickadees took to the depths of the evergreens to keep snow and ice and wind at bay. I told her I believed we were now encountering a species of education that proceeds from being forced to confront what we never before had acknowledged. She asked me if we might share some tea and was silent until it was brewed. She said she believed intimacy increased goodwill and that if, if, and that if so, then every moment we spent together would further tie happiness to utility. Let me read, that's the line I wanted. To, let me read that again because I didn't read it very well. She said she believed intimacy increased goodwill and that if so, then every moment we spent together would further tie happiness to utility. Hmm. I thought that was an astounding line. Yeah. I'm not really even is. totally sure what it means. Mm -hmm. But that insight about what love can do to people and making the connection between happiness and utility. In other words, if you're loved, you know, you can find maybe your value in the world or whatever. I'm not sure I even fully understand it, but I thought that passage is just indicative of what Shepard, of how deep he can get in terms of uh, describing human relationships and maybe the, the, the effect of intimacy or love can have on two people. Um, and, and it can be a transformative one. So I, I just thought that was an astounding passage and kind of, you know, a good example of what Shepard is able to do on the, on the human side in terms yeah. of, 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 uh, you know, stirring up our empathy, I guess. Yeah. That's a great example. That was a, that was a fine example that you found and, and how perfect it sounds coming out of the, voice of somebody who's out on the frontier. It just makes perfect sense. You know? Yeah. It just kind of blew me away. You know, it, like I had to stop and pause and think about it. And that's what Shepard can do. Yeah. 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 I can't add to that. I would just leave it at that. Uh, hopefully that serves as a strong enough recommendation, but I am very glad that you decided to share that with us in the episode. So um, let's take a quick break, John, and we'll come back and we'll talk about what we're going to read. And then I'll have you tease episode 13 for us. Okay, great. Okay, so what's coming up next to read? I'll start, John, because I'm going to do a double pass. <laughs> so oh, gonna, wow. I, know, I know, I'm going to probably cheat our readers. Well, the thing is, we're coming up close to a, a big birthday for the two of us. 
and we might discuss that later in a, a different episode. And so the, the book exchange, as yeah. John explained it, and uh, I think the last episode, or it might have been the one, the episode on isolation, um, is kicking into full gear. So I'm kind of doing reading that's research for gift giving. And I have two books, one that I got out of the library and one that I found used that I was are on my short list for to, to give to you. And I don't know, want to tell you, I don't want to tell you what they are. I would just say one is fiction, one is nonfiction. I think they're both very promising. So I'm going to read one of them depending on when I get to the library to pick that up and, uh, you know, to be continued. So that's me. What are you reading next? Well, uh, wow. That's, uh, I'm intrigued, you know, (laughs) Um, and I I guess I'll leave it at that. Well, I have to wait and see on that one. Um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm as usual, kind of throwing myself a curveball. And I just recently decided this didn't, didn't tell you about it, but the next book I'm going to read was recently made into a film. I saw it as a movie and it really intrigued me and it's a Western. So I, you know, I want to do something a little bit different. So I'm going to read a Western, but this movie was kind of unlike any Western that I've seen recently. And I have to give a shout out to a friend of mine. Um, I won't name him, but if he hears this, he'll, he'll, you know, who you are, uh, who recently brought up this movie to me and asked me if I'd seen it. And we kind of went back and forth on it, but it resurrected my interest in it. And I remembered that I have the novel on my shelf that this that this uh, uh, movie was adapted from, which is in itself a teaser, as we'll get to in a second. But uh, um, and it's the movie and the book are both called The Sisters Brothers, and th- and it was based on a novel by a guy named Patrick Dewitt, who I've never read before. Yeah. Cool. Um, but I happened to find the the novel used, and uh, this is actually before I had seen the movie. But it's a really interesting movie, and it's a very different type of Western. And uh, I thought it would be kind of intriguing to, to read a Western, just read something very different. And uh, because I like the movie so much, I'm curious to see, you know, how the novel may be different. So that's what I'm going to read next, which kind of leads us to. Yeah, we're going mean, to keep going. So we're going to that does. That's a great segue into uh, what we're going to do next for episode 13. Why don't you keep yeah. rolling with it? Okay. And I didn't, I, I just realized now that this, this was not, <laughs> I didn't plan this when we were talking about this, but that's the way things seem to work with this podcast and just in general in life. But as it happens, um, episode uh, 13, is it? What is this? 12? This is 12. So, okay. So I'm, I lost track of my number. So episode 13, we are going to, to discuss, um, movie adaptations of books. So we are going to, instead of like a lot of our shows, we say these are our favorite movie adaptations. Uh, this, this show in general, we'll probably name a bunch of our favorites, but we're just going to talk about um, how works of fiction or sometimes nonfiction uh, are adapted into films and how sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Usually the, the typical line, and you, you've said it, Jude, is uh, the book was better. You know, that's what you usually hear. Yeah. Um, and that's usually the case. But there are some notable examples where, you know, uh, movies have been made, uh, adapted, you know, on based on short stories, novels, uh, nonfiction books, where uh, the movie is at least as interesting as the novel was or the story, and sometimes maybe even more so. So we're just going to take that on as a subject. Um, movie adaptations of books and kind of list some of our favorites and discuss some 
you know, maybe notable failures or interesting examples. And, and uh, we just thought it'd be interesting to have kind of a crossover discussion that goes into just for one episode, uh, at least for now, that goes into the movie world a little bit. And, um, you know, a lot of people have asked us about, interestingly enough, whether we were going to, where we were going to tackle this, you know, uh, books that have been made into movies and, uh, you know, we're listening. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. I think it'll be a lot of fun to, to take that subject on. Do you have any comments about it? No, I'll just say, yeah, you know, people have asked us and, um, I'm sure that we'll talk about some of the big ones, you know, stuff like Lord of the Rings or the shining and stuff like that. But I know for a fact from just some of our preliminary conversations, we're also going to touch on some that are quite a bit more obscure and recommendations for either books or movies out of it. Um, so that's, that's where I would leave it, but that's going to be a good episode. Uh, so let's leave it there, John. That'll do it. Another fine episode. I just want to say, I'm sorry if there's, we haven't heard this back yet. So if there is difficulty with the audio, um, you know, we do this live and we're definitely not professionals. So we'll do our best to make it presentable, but, but I think we did, you know, manage to cover a lot of ground about one really fascinating writer and hopefully people will take that and uh, go read some of his work. Agreed. And it's been a fun discussion. Uh, thanks for having it. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you soon, John. Okay, take care, everyone. Bye-bye.